Hi, welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast, where we attempt to equip people for kingdom release. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Hey there, welcome again to Vineyard Altoona. My name is Derek. Uh, we're going to just uh, pick up our series where we left off. Uh, and, and I just want to start, you know, I don't know what you guys did over the course of the time of the pandemic. Uh, I'm sure for so many people, we watched copious amounts of uh, like Netflix and Hulu. And for part of the season of the, uh, the pandemic, uh, Jerry and I got into watching these like cooking shows. So we'd watch like, um, you know, various baking shows. Um, and, and one of our, our favorites was this show, Nailed It. And, and if you've never seen Nailed It, uh, the premise behind the show is that they take these professional bakers that make uh, these amazing cakes and cupcakes and things like that. And the idea behind the show is that they take then ordinary people and they give them instructions and tell them in a, in a given amount of time to reproduce these amazing cakes, cupcakes, and things like that. And, you know, there's so much artistic ability built into this. It's it, They're actually amazing. You should, you should take a look. But inevitably what happens when they start baking... These, these people who are, you know, amateur cooks, you know, like me, <laughs> uh, they go and, and they fire up their iPad at their station and inevitably they skip steps or they do steps out of order or instead of reading the directions, they uh, instead just sort of make it up as they go along. And the people who are watching, the, you know, the, the judges and the, and the, uh, the folks that are going to, you know, judge the competition... They're, they're always like, well, they didn't do this or they didn't do that or they skipped, you know, they skipped this step or, you know, oh, they were supposed to use powdered sugar and instead they used granulated sugar. And what ends up happening is these people make these disasters oftentimes because they didn't follow directions. They didn't start at step one. That's that following the steps in order <laughs> when it comes to cooking. Uh, and baking is fairly important. Um, and you know, that's not the only place where f- doing things in the right order matters. You know, we began this series a couple weeks ago on our third core value. We pursue wholeness with authenticity. And the first week, I broke down what we mean when we say we pursue wholeness. When we say wholeness... What we mean is that we're pursuing the shalom of God, the wholeness of God, the the, the peace of God, uh, the place where God's will is perfectly done. That's what we're after as a church. And, And in short, what we're saying is we pursue the kingdom of God. And what I said is that we who follow Jesus don't give up pursuit of the kingdom of God until it's fully realized. That when we put a target on the wall as far as what we're after, 
we accept nothing short of the kingdom. We're not satisfied with good enough, uh, or, or that's, you know, that's, that's adequate. Many of you will know, uh, this, this prayer in, in the Bible that gets referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And there's this line in the prayer that says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're after. We pursue wholeness until this line is fully realized. Your kingdom come. We're not satisfied until the kingdom of God comes fully on this planet. And then that last week, I talked about authenticity as the quality that marks our pursuit of the kingdom, that uh, we don't make authenticity an end in itself, Instead, the end is always the kingdom of God, but in our pursuit, we're people who know and acknowledge our faults and limitations and shortcomings. So we pursue the kingdom of God with authenticity, that we're authentic as we pursue the kingdom of God. What I want to do today is unpack how it is that we actually go about pursuing the kingdom of God. How do we do this? There's an order. There are steps that need to be followed. And so this is going to be a two-part message that I'm going to conclude next week. Today I'm calling this message, How Wholeness Comes, Part 1. So why don't you pray with me, and then we'll turn to God's Word. And so, Lord, I do just welcome you into this time. And God, I pray that as I speak, what would become clear is a picture of Jesus. Lord, that we would see you, that we would get a vision of the kingdom. And God, my prayer today is that you would cause us to worship. God, as we go forward, as we talk today, I pray, God, that what would be stirred in us is the worship of King Jesus. Lord, would you put power on this message? God, enable me to speak as I should, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to look in the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. And just for some context, the book of Revelation is actually a, uh, it's sort of a threefold uh, book. It's, it's an apocalyptic prophetic letter. Revelation is this letter that's written to the church uh, the early church that was facing opposition. And there are things in it that we as the church now can take and understand. And I think there's a lot that we can learn. Uh, you know, in the early church, when they were facing opposition, this, this apocalyptic prophetic letter was written. And I think, you know, as we think about how it is that we pursue the kingdom of God in the face of a culture that is getting further away from it, I think there are certainly things that we can learn. John uh, writes this prophetic apocalyptic letter to the church as they're facing opposition. The church in those days was facing opposition, and I'm sure that many of us, we can relate, right? So after he starts the letter by authenticating it, saying this is the letter that was given to him by Jesus... He addresses some specific churches, seven specific churches, and then he launches off in chapter 4 by painting this picture 
of the throne room of God and the worship that is taking place in heaven. Look with me at Revelation 4, beginning in verse 1. Here's what we read. This is John. He says, After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's Jesus, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looked like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones are twenty-four elders, dressed in white robes, with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature flying, uh, I'm sorry, like a flying eagle. So, We'll just stop right there. John paints this like majestic picture of the throne room of heaven. And before he launches off in the rest of Revelation, John focuses in on God and what's uh, going on in heaven. Now, this is important because it orients all that is to come appropriately. In light of the reality of the throne of God, everything else gets put in its proper place. He starts this way because no matter what else is to come, God is on the throne. And this is critical for us to understand. It's always critical to start everything by seeing Jesus on the throne. You see, before we start thinking about our lives and the ways the changes need to happen, or, or, you know, the, the issues that we face in our culture. Before we start addressing issues in our culture, we have to begin with worship. Certainly, we need to address things. But the way we change is that we first see Jesus. It's what really keeps us from being a social club or a moral improvement club. To begin with issues before we worship Jesus is to put the cart before the horse. Uh, many of you know I really enjoy C.S. Lewis, and uh, he said this, uh, put first things first, and second things are thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. Now listen, it's very important that we get this right, because if we don't get this right, everything else goes sideways. Our responsibility in all that we do is to begin by seeing Jesus and orienting ourselves appropriately in worship. The reason this is so critical is because we need to set all of our actions into the context of being surrendered and submitted to King Jesus. This is the appropriate way to start. It's, it's essential. You know, 
I don't know about you, but what I've noticed is so much of what gets us in trouble as followers of Jesus is that we begin with the things that we do and hope they will lead us to worship. You know, we, we, we begin with our priorities and our activities, our mission, our objectives, and we hope that they'll result in worship. We begin with, with all of our interpretations of Scripture. We begin with uh, the things that we do, and we hope that we end in worship. But when we do this, what tends to happen is we get off course. Here's the thing. As we live out our Christianity, something will always be on the throne of our hearts. When I think about following Jesus... And the way that my faith plays out in my life, something is always on the throne of my heart. Friend, it's true for you. When it comes to your faith, when it comes to living your life, something will always be on the throne of your heart. It may be Jesus. Praise God for the times when that's true. But here's the thing. It may just as easily be something else, our morality, or our theology, or our politics, or our sexuality, or our finances. There's no limit to what we're capable of putting on the throne of our hearts. It's so easy for us to, to deceive ourselves and to believe that there's not something else in front of Jesus on the throne of our hearts. And if we don't begin by intentionally seeing and worshiping Jesus on the throne will naturally put something else on the throne. Friend, one of the things that I, that I can guarantee you is if you don't intentionally posture yourself in worship before Jesus on a regular basis, something else will sit in that place. You'll put your career in that place. You'll put your uh, education in that place. You'll put your family in that place. You'll put your possessions in that place. Something else will find its way onto the throne of your heart unless you intentionally and regularly posture yourself in worship of Jesus, that you see Jesus and you worship him as the king. This is something that the church over and over and over again in its history has fallen short of. That we've fallen into this trap over and over and over again. Beginning everything with worshiping King Jesus sets everything in the appropriate order. It ensures that it's actually the kingdom of God we're pursuing, right? If that's what we're after in this church, right? That, that we want to, that our mission is to equip people to release the kingdom of God. Then what we need to make sure is actually true is that we're actually worshiping King Jesus and it's his kingdom that we're, that we're trying to release. And when we intentionally begin with worship, it ensures that it's actually the kingdom of God we're pursuing and not a counterfeit kingdom uh, that, that we've contrived on our own. In fact, 
because our mission is equipping people for kingdom release, it actually demands that worship will continue to be a central feature in all that we do. Because that's our mission, one of the most central activities that will always happen in this church is some form of corporate worship. And as a high calling, for those who are worship leaders in this church, one of the most important responsibilities of the worship team is to cultivate and grow the capacity of the people in this church to worship Jesus. The point of the worship team is to help us grow in our ability to worship Jesus, that that the, the responsibility of the worship team is to teach us, to lead us into a place where we would encounter Jesus, where we would see Jesus, and that we would learn to worship him appropriately. That's actually what the goal of the worship team is. The space that we make in this church every week, you see it, for musical worship, it's not a gig, it's not Christian karaoke, it's not trying to set the mood in the room for the sermon or, or, or for something else. It's an intentional time and space for the people of God to orient themselves appropriately in worship of King Jesus. And it's his kingdom that we hope to release into the world. That's why weekly participation in worship is so critical. Because if we're going to go out into the world claiming to represent Jesus, we have to begin by worshiping King Jesus. And it takes regular practice. We have to do this on a regular basis. So if we're going to begin our pursuit of the kingdom by worshiping, it would be helpful to have some direction. Uh, What's involved in worship? John here in Revelation, he gives us a picture of what worship in heaven looks like. And I want to show you just a few important parts of the worship that's taking place right now in heaven. I I just want to highlight a few things. First off, worship involves singing. (laughs) This may come as a surprise to you. Worship involves singing. Let me just read a few of the songs in this picture. Like, if we look at this picture, I just want you to to see a a few of the songs. Beginning in uh, chapter 4, verse 8, says this, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Continuing on, verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Jump forward, chapter 5, verse 9, says this, They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God. And they will reign on earth. Verse 11. Then I looked, 
And I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, listen to this, singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. One more, verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Over and over and over again, the picture of worship involves singing. There's this critique, uh, and I read an article on it this week, uh, of what you might consider the modern worship movement. And and this, you know, this is uh, what we would say is kind of normal, right? The The worship that involves like, bands you know the, the the worship that has moved on from organs and pianos and it's more like bands there's this critique that we sort of inappropriately boil worship down to singing and, and what we would call worship is really we're just meaning the singing portion of our services and, and the the critique says that we neglect the rest of our lives and and i think sometimes it's a fair critique but what often happens is on the heels of this, we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We throw out singing as a, an important part of worship. Listen, worship is, is absolutely more than just singing, but it's never less. Cover to cover and throughout history, God's people are a singing people. It's just inescapable. There's not a place in Scripture that doesn't define God's people as a people that sing. I mean, just think of the Psalms. The whole thing is a book of songs. Worship of God involves singing. And of course it involves more, but singing is always at the root. Now maybe, you know, you don't consider yourself a good singer. Listen, sing anyway. The Bible says, make a joyful noise, right? Sing anyway, whether you're good or you're not. Now, I'm sure one of the biggest challenges I think we all face, right? Especially nowadays is our feelings. How many of you ever shown up to worship, but you just didn't feel like it? You know, you had the fight with the wife and the kids didn't behave and you know, your mom's mad at you, your dad's upset with you, you know, you had a fight with your roommate and, you know, the bills are overdue. And, and we've got all these reasons, right, where we don't feel like singing, right? Anybody relate? I mean, maybe you're someone that never feels like singing. And so in an attempt to be authentic to what we feel, we just choose not to sing. Listen, friends, fe- singing in worship, it's not dependent on your feelings. It's not about what you feel. The goal of singing is to magnify and worship Jesus. He's worthy of your love, devotion, and worship regardless of how you feel. I mean, just consider the words of the songs I just read. Not one of them is an expression of my own feelings. Every song is an expression of who God is and his worth 
to receive all we have. And, and friends, you know, one of the things I've learned is that if I will press through my own lack of feeling uh, up to it and just see and worship Jesus, quite often the way I feel will change. Sing. As your pastor, allow me to give you a bit of pastoral wisdom. Sing anyway. Worship Jesus anyway. Worship Jesus in spite of how you feel. So worship involves singing. And worship involves the whole body. You know, this is one I think sometimes we get a little nervous about, right? You see people that put their hands up. You know, you some people have their hands out. Sometimes people end up kneeling on the floor uh, and all this stuff. And I think some people are like, I'm not sure what to do with that or what to make of that. It seems a little extravagant or a little over the top, right? But listen, throughout the Bible, when worship gets mentioned, where the Bible talks about worshiping God, what often accompanies it is a body posture. Worship in the Bible is fully expressive. It might be laying prostrate on the ground. It might be hands lifted high in the air. It might be kneeling. These are just some of the ways the Bible describes worshiping God. You know, David in the Old Testament he, he's dancing wildly, and when he's confronted about it, he says, I'll become even more undignified than this. Look again at verses 9 to 10 of chapter 4. It says this, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, listen, fall before the one who is seated on the throne. And worship the one who lives forever and ever. Or look at uh, chapter 5, verse 14. It says, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. They didn't sit in their chairs with their arms crossed. They fell down and worshiped. There's something holy uh, uh, bodily about how we ought to worship Jesus. You know, there's this weird dichotomy that we have in our culture. We, we think that, uh, you know, biblical Christianity is just something that impacts your spiritual life while leaving everything else un, uh, unaltered. Many of us have this picture of ourselves and our spiritual lives that really is very similar to a grapefruit. You ever eat grapefruit? You ever cut a grapefruit in half and eat it? You know, it has this these uh, little wedges. My mom used to cut them in half for us for breakfast. You put a little you know, sugar on top or whatever. And then you eat the, each individual wedge, right? You get it? It looks like a, like a pie. Many of us think of ourselves this way, right? Let me explain. It, we, we think, well, this wedge is my physical part. Then I have this wedge, which is my spiritual part. And then I have this wedge, which is my mental part. I have my emotional part. I have my relational part. And we cut ourselves up into these little pieces and so your spiritual life just fits in this one little peach piece, but it doesn't ever really touch your emotions or your, your physical life. But true biblical Christianity is more like chocolate milk. You put all the parts together in one glass and swirl it together, and the distinctions between the chocolate and the milk and the sugar and all that disappear. 
that everything impacts everything else. Worshiping Jesus is not something that just takes place in the spiritual part of you. Worshiping Jesus is something you do with your mind, emotions, spirit, and your body. We should never be the kind of people who could sing the song, I Surrender All, with our arms crossed. There's something about surrendering all to Jesus that almost demands that your arms be in the air, right? Like, I surrender. We ought to take an appropriate posture. What's appropriate? Well, just think about the posture you would take if you were in the throne room next to the 24 elders. Would you want to be the only one standing before Jesus while the rest of them lay prostrate on the floor? Some of you heard me tell this story, uh, but a couple of years ago, we went to the, the Vineyard National Conference. And uh, one of the things that uh, one of the worship times, I don't remember, it was maybe the third day. Um, in the worship time, I became aware of being in the presence of God and standing in the throne room. And I remember feeling like I was entirely too high to be standing before the King of Kings. That I had to be lower. And that's the way it is, right? If Jesus were standing right here in this room, what posture would be appropriate to worship him? It involves a body posture. So worship involves singing. Worship involves the whole body. And finally, worship involves giving. Look again at verses 9 and 10. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, giving glory, honor, and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever. Check this. They cast their crowns before the throne. They offer them, they give their crowns to the feet of Jesus. In this picture of worship in heaven, John says, giving happens. Giving happens. John Wimber, the guy that God used uh, to birth the vineyard movement, uh, he, he wrote this article in describing the, the phases of the heart, the process of worship. And when he did this, he, he put generosity as the capstone. That, that the thing that caps it all up, off, is generosity, is giving. Worship comes to its completion when we're moved to generosity with material things. Here's what he said. I'll just read it to you. The fifth phase of worship is the giving of substance. The church knows so little about giving, yet the Bible exhorts us to give to God. It is pathetic to see people preparing for ministry who don't know how to give. That's like an athlete entering a race without knowing how to run. If we haven't learned to give money, we haven't learned anything. Ministry is a life of giving. We give our whole life. God should have ownership of everything. Remember, whatever we give God control of, he can multiply and bless. Not so we can amass goods, but so we can be more involved in his enterprise. 
I mean, that's pretty strong language. And when he says about ministry, it's not like, well, the, the pastors. He's saying that everyone who follows Jesus is called to ministry. And so if we haven't learned to give, we're really not even prepared to do ministry, to go out into the marketplace and release the kingdom. If we haven't learned to give, we're not even prepared. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, <laughs> What does giving have to do with worship? Listen, the reason giving is the pinnacle of worship is because it only comes as a result of having seen Jesus and having come to an awareness of the surpassing worth and value of Jesus. Once you've come face to face with Jesus, you can't help but be moved to generosity. You've, you've received the greatest thing. All material goods pale in comparison to having come face to face with Jesus. Listen, there's only one appropriate way to worship Jesus, and that is open-handed. That our worship of Jesus ought to compel us to generosity. That we ought to be willing to give whatever he would ask. Friend, is that true for you? Does your worship of Jesus drive you to generosity? I just was thinking about last week uh, when we were in worship and it may have been a missed opportunity, I'm not sure, but it really seemed like as we were in worship, that the presence of God has, had come so heavily in that space, I felt like we should give money. I don't know to whom, but worship of Jesus ought to drive you to generosity that there's nothing you wouldn't be willing to put in the hands of Jesus. The elders cast their crowns, the things they have of most value, the, the material possession they have of most value, they cast at the feet of Jesus and say, you can have it. Do you worship that way? Friends, these are, are critical things to know is that, that this, this stuff of worship is not just a nice add-on to a service, but it, that, that it's a, a liturgy intended to shape us a certain way, intended to posture us and, and orient us appropriately toward the kingdom. And if we miss this, if we miss putting worship first, we'll always replace it with something else. All the wackiest theologies and all the, the strangest priorities within the church's history come because people didn't develop them out of worship. Because when you worship Jesus, it puts everything else into perspective. Friends, we have to be people who worship first. We have to become worshipers. If we want to pursue the kingdom of God, we want to pursue wholeness with authenticity. It starts by being worshipers of Jesus, extravagant worshipers of Jesus. And I want to challenge you 
and encourage you as people in this family, as people who are part of this uh, faith community, as people who are part of this church, to become extravagant worshipers of Jesus. 